The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to the Squawkbox. We are live from London while Steve is in Vilnius. Here are your headlines today. Direct, substantive and productive. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen hails a constructive trip to China after holding 10 hours of talks with senior officials as the U.S. considers curbs on investment in the country. We're taking targeted national security actions. We know that the decoupling of the world's two largest economies would be disastrous for both countries and destabilizing for the world and it would be virtually impossible to undertake. Chinese producer prices fall at their fastest pace in over seven years, while CPI comes in on the brink of deflation, underscoring the challenges facing the world's second largest economy. Meanwhile, the US President Joe Biden says Ukraine is not yet ready for NATO membership, acknowledging differences between the defense alliance on Ukraine. This as Kyiv marks 500 days of war ahead of the key summit here in Vilnius, Lithuania. Headline U.S. non-farm payrolls come in below forecast, but strong wage growth fuels concerns of further rate hikes from the Fed sending the Dow to its worst weekly performance since March. And ECB Governor and Council member Francois Villeroy de Gallo pushes back against suggestions central banks should raise their 2% inflation targets, while Eurogroup President Pascal Donahoe tells CNBC there's more work to do. If I look at where we are with inflation now versus where we were last year, the situation is improving. However, I do not believe that our journey is yet complete. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen struck a pragmatic tone following two days of discussions with top Chinese officials. Yellen held 10 hours of talks that she described as direct, substantive and productive and a step forward in helping to reset relations between the world's two largest economies. Yellen is the second member of the Biden administration to visit Beijing in recent weeks at a time when Washington is considering curbs on U.S. investment in China. Let's get out to Sam for more. Sam, we heard it in the, the choice of language from Yellen about the progress that had been made through these conversations, but it still seems as though there is a long way to try and repair this relationship with China. Good morning to you, Karen. Absolutely, because if you read some of the language in Chinese state media today, you do get a sense that while they say that she very much improved the mood and she is very much viewed as sort of the moderate and voice within the Biden administration and the voice of reason, uh, this was largely seen as positive. However, they do believe that this relationship and the challenges within it cannot be fixed with just a couple of meetings and uh, particularly 
from, as a guest was just saying, in Capital Connection by a few of the top elite. This is very much a group effort now. So what we saw was basically no major breakthroughs or deliverables from these meetings. And that was widely expected. The bar was pretty low for uh, certainly uh, Yellen's visit to China because of the deep structural challenges uh, and tensions that we're seeing between these two sides, you know, not to mention the uh, tit-for-tat retaliatory steps that we saw them taking just days before she headed to Beijing. So at the very least, what was successful was they managed to re-establish contact and they are continuing to keep these lines of communication open, uh, certainly at an economic level. She did meet with the new economic team. That was the aim of the game. Uh, Premier Li Chang, of course, who we know is a business guy uh, and, of course, U.S. businesses as well to gauge how they are feeling operating in China, given some of the challenges right now. Take a listen to a little bit of what she had to say. The U.S. will continue to take targeted actions that are necessary to protect our national security interests and those of our allies. As we do so, we adhere to a set of important principles, like making sure our national security actions are transparent, narrowly scoped, and targeted to clear objectives. Importantly, these actions are motivated by straightforward national security considerations. They are not used by us to gain economic advantage. So as you heard, they're very much defending U.S. interests there, particularly around uh, the economy, but also at the same time reiterating that they aren't looking to decouple, uh, but talking about de-risking and also that they are seeking a healthy economic uh, relationship and competition here. Now, that was what Yellen had to say. Of course, no press conference coming from the Chinese side, as largely expected, and no surprises there. But we did actually hear from the finance ministry uh, just in the last hour or so, with some lines from them uh, suggesting that they're now asking the U.S. to take practical steps and actions in response to China's concerns about uh, U.S. economic sanctions. Um, China says that they did reiterate in these meetings their concerns um, on, one, lifting those Trump-era tariffs. That is very much a big worry for China, uh, but also to stop suppressing Chinese companies. But also they did mention a ban on Xinjiang products. Now, China's development, they say, is an opportunity, uh, not a challenge for the US. And uh, sort of if you read between the lines in terms of that language, you do very much get the sense that um, China's expectations here were very big going into this. They were very measuring, very much measuring the success of these meetings based on whether they would reduce those tariffs or at least have conversations about that and reduce some of the pressure on these Chinese companies. Uh, so in that sense, it's perhaps a little bit early to gauge the success of these meetings. Uh, what will be very telling is if we do see follow-ups with the likes of Gina Raimondo heading to China where they can perhaps iron out some of their differences around some of those nitty-gritty trade details. Back to you guys in London.
Sam, thank you so much for breaking down the detail and for the analysis. Now, in terms of uh, data, we also got some insight into what's happening in China, complementing the geopolitical picture. China's factory gate prices fell for a ninth consecutive month in the latest sign of a stalled recovery in the world's second largest economy. The producer price index came in at 5.4% lower on the year in June, marking the steepest decline in over seven and a half years. Let's get to Arana Pillai Essex, who is the principal analyst of Verisk and Maplecroft. Aaron, thank you very much for joining us. It's been quite a weekend of conversations that Janet Yellen has been having in China. And the view is that we don't want to see any further deterioration in the relationship. That said, even though there's been progress from both Yellen and Blinken prior to Yellen's trip, if there are any fresh curbs when it comes to, say, AI chips or technology, surely this just causes a further breakdown in relationships with China. I mean, that's it. The administration is really trying to thread a very fine needle. So whilst they're likely to basically provide a lot of kind of assuaging rhetoric around the broader relationship and ensuring that the commercial economic exchanges remain resilient and robust, they're also a growing securitization over larger swaths of the economy. So you mentioned AI, there's cloud computing potential restrictions coming into place, also restrictions on outbound investment, which would be a quite an unprecedented policy directive. So whilst there is rhetoric towards, you know, ensuring that the relationship remains resilient, there's also at the very same time an intensification around investment and trade restrictions on the U.S. side. Aaron, in recent uh, weeks and days, we've been talking about the chip sector and how the, the latest rules are designed to target this area, which is, of course, a, a very competitive area now before the United States and China. But away from that, away from the, the various different raw materials and what the United States could do, there is a very real impact on other parts of the economy. And we can see this ex expressed through Boeing. Um, passenger uh, plane sales from these passenger jets used to actually bolster the numbers for the United States, but we haven't seen many carriers uh, ordered from those uh, Chinese players for a number of months now, no large orders. Just tell us about how this reset could actually impact more companies rather than just technology companies. I think that's it. I mean, you know, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan spoke about a sort of small yard, high fence concept, this notion that a certain part of the economy could be you know, an area in which national security interests sort of play a dominant role, but it would be a small sphere of the economy. But I think what we're seeing on both the China and the US side is that actually we're talking about some of the largest or at least emerging growing sectors. So semiconductors were mentioned, but of course, AI being a new battlefield. So the kind of downstream implication and effects for multinationals, for the general business community is that uh, there's a lot more kind of concern and scrutiny over you know how much entanglement there is between the economy so that's got to be a downside risk really for sort of medium to long term Aaron, absolutely fascinating to listen to your comments to Karen's questions. And you mentioned the word battlefield. You're talking, of course, about economic battlefields as well. Well, I'm here in Vilnius uh, in Lithuania at the NATO summit. And one issue, which is nowhere near the top of the list, but it is still a contentious issue, is whether NATO has an expansion role in Asia Pacific, whether it should be opening an office in Tokyo will actually come up. Uh, the French are against it. They don't want blurred lines. Others are saying, no, it would just be a natural extension uh, of the, the group groupings, uh, natural allies and bringing players such as Japan as well. How much of a concern do you think the Chinese have about Western expansion or NATO expansion in the Asia Pacific region? Or is it just a peripheral issue, given the fact that we're already seeing militarization on both sides of the whole region? I think it's a fundamental issue. I think 
definitely the perception will be the growing kind of NATO assertiveness in other theaters outside of the sort of the classic European theater is one that just speaks towards another huge irritant around the dynamic around Taiwan, but also maritime boundaries in the South China Sea being an enormous issue for uh, U.S. allies in the region. So it's it's very much part of this really heightened state of tension that we're seeing between the superpowers. Aaron, good morning. Uh, Juliana here. Um, We're fast approaching the 2024 presidential election stateside, and one of the uh, rare and uh, uh, rare points of bilateral support is China. And just over the weekend, we heard from Ron DeSantis, one of the Republican frontrunners, that if he were to get into the White House, he would support revoking China's permanent normal trade relations status if he wins. how realistic is it that we get a, a softening of tensions between the U.S. and China, given we've got the election coming up? I think that's a, that's an excellent point. I mean, when you look at the review that the White House is undertaking on the Trump era tariffs, which is obviously a huge issue of concern on China's side to see some relaxation there. Will the White House have any political capital that it's willing to expend to really uh, see a reduction in those? Most likely not. I mean, as soon as we get into an election campaign season, any sign of concession uh, towards China will be, you know, very much uh, problematized by the other side. So unlikely to see uh, a sort of a reduction in, in that. Aaron, thank you so much for uh, joining us this morning, sharing your analysis. Aaron Pillai, Essex, Principal Analyst at Verisk Maplecroft. U.S. President Joe Biden says it is premature to call for a vote on Ukraine's accession to NATO, saying allies need to lay out a rational path for Kyiv to join. His comments come ahead of the NATO summit in Vilnius this week, where some member states, including the U.S. and Germany, will come under pressure to support Ukraine's membership ambitions. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky visited Turkey to bring home five former Ukrainian prisoners of war captured by Russian forces in Mariupol. Moscow says it violates the prisoner exchange deal that saw the commanders taken to Turkey. Zelensky marked the occasion in Lviv, where he also reminded people of another milestone in the country's war against Russia. Today marks 500 days of full-scale war. 500 days of our struggle for freedom and independence of Ukraine, for dignity, for the right to live for all our people, all of Ukraine. Ukraine will always be grateful to everyone who fights for it, our soldiers, our heroes. Today, on the 500th day of the war, we returned home to Ukraine, five of our heroes, the heroes of Ukraine, commanders of the defense of Mariupol and Azovstal. Well, Steve joins us now from Vilnius, as you saw just a moment ago, uh, to set the scene for the summit kicking off tomorrow. Steve, good morning. Yeah, good morning to Juliana. Good morning again, Karen. Look, look, there's a lot of issues on the table here. It is not just about Ukraine, but there is no doubt about it. The epicenter uh, of the conversations will be what to do about Ukraine, what to do about the defence of NATO and the West in Europe, in the north, in this part of the region, and of course, especially in the east as well. Getting straight to the crux of of the key issue of the day, and I can talk about seven or eight very big issues uh, uh, throughout the next few days, but it is this membership issue for Ukraine. Let me just give a little bit of history to our viewers as well. And it's something I mentioned, I know, about nine years ago when I was standing in Kyiv as the Russians invaded Crimea. And this is uh, actually what kind of guarantees has Ukraine got 
or not got from the West as well. And going back into uh, fairly decent history is 1994. Now, 1994, post uh, the falling uh, of uh, the, the, the wall, uh, the, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, and the, had something called the Budapest Memorandum in 94, which was the Western powers plus Russia basically guaranteeing the integrity uh, of Ukraine in, in return for pretty much them giving up uh, those Soviet-era nuclear weapons as well. Well, that proved to be pretty much a useless piece of paper uh, in 2014 as uh, the West stood by pretty much uh, as the Russians took hold with their satellite uh, organizations in the uh, Donetsk region, the Hansk region as well, uh, and of course in Crimea, especially with the invasion and then annexation then. Uh, then we had 2008 and something called uh, the, the, the Bucharest announcement. And this is where Georgia and Ukraine were put on a path potentially to membership. A formal membership application, so to speak, was put on the table as well. Well, that was 15 years ago and we've seen very little progress in the meantime. So what the Ukrainians are saying is, look, we've had paper guarantees with the Budapest Memorandum in 1994, proved useless. We've had an announcement in 2008, 15 years ago, uh, about potential membership to NATO. Uh, and that didn't deter uh, Putin from aggression in 2014, aggression uh, in February 2022. So what we want is something more concrete. What we want is a formal invite. We want a membership action plan, a map, MAP, as people are calling it, to get into uh, NATO. We want that application to, to, to have tangible um, milestones so we can get in as well. And that is exactly what some parties don't want. The Germans don't particularly want it at the moment. Uh, we know Biden has said we don't think the Ukrainians are ready for it as well. So what can the West offer if they're not offering that, which, which won't leave Ukraine for the longer term in something that uh, Kaya Kalas called a grey zone, where there are blurred lines, where actually the blurred lines create an opportunity for President Putin to say, well, I'm not breaking, uh, I'm not uh, overstepping the mark, I'm not uh, attacking a NATO nation, I'm not triggering those key Article 5 guarantees. And you'll hear a lot about Article 5 again over the next few days, which is an attack on one is attack on the rest and a potentially military action can therefore come from our partners of Ukraine if it were to have an Article 5 guarantee. So what would the next model kind of look like? Well, it would be enormous amounts of security guarantees, uh, upgrading the relationship uh, to some form of council between Ukraine and NATO, from what at the moment is just a commission as well. Implicit military intelligence sharing training guarantees uh, for the Ukrainians. What, what does this sound like to everybody out there? Well, it sounds like an Israeli model, and this is what a lot of people are talking about now, a so-called Israeli model, where there wasn't a formal association. You weren't in a formal organisation such as the North Atlantic Treaty, but you were uh, backed heavily militarily uh, and with other big, big security guarantees, as indeed the security the US has uh, for the Israelis as well. Uh, and that is the minimum, I think, that Mr Zelensky and the Ukrainian delegation would want from this meeting here as well. What they want to see, what the most contentious word here in Vilnius is uh, for the next couple of days, is the word invite. Uh, and I don't think it's coming at the moment, given a lot of the mood music we've seen uh, regarding the various issues. Uh, other key issues on the table, and there are a lot of other key issues on the table, it, it's just how is the war going? How is Ukraine doing? What's going on with the counteroffensive? What weaponry does Ukraine need to make a serious indent in what, let's be honest about it, seem to be a lot more stalwart Russian defences? And then that brings us on to this issue of munitions. It brings us on to the issue of cluster bombs as well, which it is a contentious issue. There is no doubt about it as well. These are seen as indiscriminate offensive weapons, which actually have potentially uh, devastating effects on, on, on civilian populations and not just the military. 
military you're attacking as well. My, my take on this one is, is, is the issue of cluster bombs is very, very serious. And that's why so many countries are against it. Countries within NATO and without NATO on a global basis as well. But every time we've seen a debate about various types of offensive military uh, weaponry given to Ukraine, it seems to have been overcome. It's, the hurdle seems to have overcome, i.e. we talked a lot about moving from defensive weaponry to offensive weaponry. Well, again, that's a moot point. It's semantics, as some of the experts have told me previously on Scorebox, i.e. any weapon that fires a projectile can potentially be used defensively and offensively as well. Then we talked about tanks as well. Well, eventually that became a moot point because Leopard tanks, Abrams tanks, Challenger 2 tanks, or Challenger 1 tanks, I beg your pardon, are, are making it uh, to the battlefield. But then we've talked about uh, longer-range munitions, uh, uh, high-powered artillery, which have greater and greater range. Again, that seems to have been uh, overcome by the alliance, and, and the protestations and concerns seem to be overcome. And we've talked about F-16s as well and, and fighter jets as well. Again, it's an issue that looks like it's overcome. And I, and I feel it'll be perhaps a similar story where it comes to cluster munitions. Steve, I just wanted to jump in and ask you about uh, the end to the conflict. I mean, early on, as the war began, there was a big discussion as to who could power broke some sort of conversation that could bring about the end of the conflict. That seems to have dissipated uh, the longer this conflict has gone on. But there is a trip coming up, and this is the first time that Vladimir Putin will step foot in a NATO country next month. He'll be going to Turkey, speaking to Erdogan. There have been conversations between the two leaders over time. This conversation that is coming up in August seems to be framed around the grains deal continuing that to ensure that there are food supplies going to the rest of the world. The other part around prison swap, nothing about ending or having a conversation around this conflict or brokering some sort of outcome. What does that mean in terms of who's a power broker at this point? I don't know, Karen. I, I'll be honest with you. The, the, the two sides look very very stuck in some, some very, very important issues. And that is what territory is Ukrainian, what territory is Russian. And until you can overcome that, it is very difficult to see how you get to the point uh, where there can be some form of peace deal. Are we going to see a frozen conflict for another nine years? They've been at war for nine years. Let, let's make no bones about this. This isn't about February the 24th, 2022. This is about when I was standing in Kiev, when, when at the same time the Russians were officially invading uh, Crimea and then annexing it and, and actually putting their puppet states in, in in the south and east of the region, having taken over Zaporizhia as well and Kherson as well. These are now officially part of, of, of Russia as well. So how do you get over that as well is one of the key issues. The, the, the way that perhaps the Ukrainians could find some form of, of middle ground would potentially be the fact if they were to lose some form of military support or some form of implicit financing support from the Europeans as well. Uh, and then they would find themselves on a stickier wicket in terms of negotiations. But, but it's very interesting, given what I was just saying earlier about stronger security guarantees, stronger military support, more offensive military support going to the Ukrainians. The, uh, the Ukrainians are not going to turn around and say, hang on a second, we're getting more support from the West militarily in return for not getting our NATO membership bid uh, acceded to. If we get more military support, we still think we can have a more successful counteroffensive, and we are not willing to make any territorial um, concessions on that front as well. So if you're getting more military support from the West, it is perhaps unlikely the Ukrainians are then going to turn around and say, well, we will end this war uh, on terms which are favourable to the Russians that still give the Russians' influence in Crimea and those other four regions as well. So I hear what you're saying about micro deals regarding grain, regarding prisoner swaps, regarding some humanitarian issues as well. But in terms of actually ending this war, 
I at the moment can't see how that can happen until there are more military gains uh, from the Ukrainians. Steve, um, fantastic breakdown of what we can expect and what to think about uh, as the summit approaches. Now, coming up today, the Spanish election campaign kicks off with the center-right People's Party extending its lead and the far-right Vox Party gaining ground. We'll hear from the EIU senior Europe analyst, Agnese Ortolani, this hour. And our very own Charlotte Reed is in Aix-en-Provence. We'll bring you her conversations with France's Europe minister, Lawrence Boone, and Eurogroup president, Pascal Donahoe. And from China's economic slowdown and going green to the uncertainty around Ukraine's grain exports, we'll look at what's shaping the shipping industry with John Wobensmith, CEO for Genco Shipping. That's at 9.30 CET. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. We had a red-hot ADP last week and uh, setting the scene for what we could see from that jobs report Friday. But it did come in under expectations as a U.S. June non-farm payrolls number hit a lower than the expected rate of 209,000 as across the tape. That is well down from May's revised 306,000 and the weakest jobs growth since December 2020, taking some steam out of a red-hot labour market. But a 0.4% rise in hourly wages and modest decline in the unemployment rate added to expectations that the Fed will raise rates by 25 basis points at this month's meeting. Speaking to our colleague stateside, the Chicago Fed president, Austin Goolsby, said there are more Fed hikes to come and stressed the U.S. central bank can still achieve a soft landing. We, we have to figure out when, but there are some modest increases to come, but we've done a lot of the the lifting, and now we're waiting for the impact. The Fed's overriding goal right now is to get inflation down. We are going to succeed at it. And to do that without a recession would be a triumph. And that's the golden path. And I feel like we're on that golden path. U.S. equity markets ended the week in the red, despite that weaker-than-expected jobs report scaling back expectations of further Fed rate hikes. We had all three of the major indices and lower on Friday. The Dow pulled back about six-tenths of a percent. The S&P 500 lost a third of a percent. And the tech-heavy Nasdaq pulled back about 0.13 percent. The losses in the market driven mainly by the consumer staples sector, while energy was the best-performing part of the market. That sector gained about 2 percent. Now, for the week overall, you can see beside me here, it was a downbeat one for Wall Street. All three of the majors ended lower. The Dow Jones led the losses, pulling back about 2% for the week overall. The Nasdaq held up best, but still lost about nine-tenths of a percent. And all of this, of course, in the lead-up to today's big week with the U.S. CPI print due out on Wednesday. That's going to be key for uh, the direction of travel for the Federal Reserve as well, and, of course, the NATO summit in Lithuania. And then the start of Q2 earnings season. We've got the big lenders due to begin uh, delivering their results at the end of this week and kicking things off for the broader corporate space. Uh, in terms of treasuries, uh, this is the picture for treasuries this morning. We've got yields higher across the board. The 10-year U.S. Treasury note trading around 4.08% or so, still a steep inversion. The two-year trading at just under 5 
4%. Dollar crosses. We saw a lot of action in the dollar last week. The dollar index retreated 9 tenths of a percent on Friday. Its worst daily performance since March. For the week overall, the dollar index ended about 0.6% lower. This morning, we've got a bit of strength coming back into the greenback. Sterling is down about a quarter of a percent versus the dollar, 128.06. So we have traveled a ways up versus the dollar uh, in recent days. The euro also trading slightly on the back foot this morning. Uh, but again, also the euro has been appreciating versus the dollar recently. So we're hovering around the 109.5 mark. Asian markets. Here's the picture in terms of overnight trade. Not a huge amount of movement in the Shanghai Composite. We're flat on the morning uh, as investors uh, digest the latest inflation data out of China with the PPI, uh, as we mentioned at the start of the program, declining at its fastest pace since 2016, while consumer prices were unchanged in June. The Hang Seng outperforming this morning. We're up about half a percent. You've got a strong bid for some of the tech names in that basket. Uh, and the Nikkei 225 over in Japan pulling back by about two-tenths of a percent. Opening calls for Europe. We are looking at a mixed and overall muted start to trade here in Europe. Uh, the Zetra DAX and the FTSE 100 looking to open a touch higher, while the CAC 40 and the FTSE MIB are looking to pull back. Uh, in addition to the things I already mentioned, the US CPI report and the start of earnings season, as well as the NATO summit in the UK, we're also keeping an eye on the Mansion House dinner due to take place later today. Uh, Chancellor Jeremy Hunt and the Bank of England governor are going to be addressing business leaders. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.